without further ado, Marissa Silver. Thank you. Hi. Is this good? Can you guys all hear? First of all, thank you so much. It is so fantastic to see you, and and I really appreciate it. It's, you know, sometimes you show up and, you know, as the writers in the room know, there's like three people there, so this is very nice, so thank you. Um, And thank you, Skylight, for having me. I love this bookstore. It's the hometown bookstore, and I'm always so happy to to be here with my books. Um, So I'm going to start reading just from the beginning. Um, And um, I'm going to read, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit in the beginning, so it's not contiguous parts, but I think it'll make sense. Um, And I'm not going to tell you anything. Picture a flower, the midwife yells, her voice reaching the baby as warped and concave sounds. Picture a flower. Next, another voice, closer this time. The sound so near that if the baby could stretch its arm, it might touch it. You bitch, the voice howls. You monster, get out of me now. Agata Janacek is enraged that this should be happening to her, even though she has wished for it and prayed for it, consulted the gypsy witch Zlata and buried amulets of animal bones wrapped in the hair of a virgin for it. But old as she is, and tough threads of gray streak her hair and sprout from the colorless mole on her chin, and thinly veil her pubis where there once was a dark, luxurious thatch, the old stories of childhood hold sway. Her mother warned her about this moment. It was a cautionary bedtime story chanted night after night. Little Agatha, the prettiest girl in the village, lives in a magical paradise filled with delicious honey-scented medovnik and talking bunny rabbits. Then one day a terrible monster comes and whispers in her ear, words sweeter than any jam, sweeter even than her favorite candies that hang from the Christmas tree each year and which she is forbidden to pull off until Christmas Day, even though this means surrendering the low-hanging chocolate treasures to the mice and rats who skitter across the floorboards at night and gorge themselves, their nocturnal pleasures mapped by a trail of black pellets. But little Agatha cannot resist the tantalizing whispers of the monster, and she allows him to touch her face and stroke her body and climb on top of her and shove his hard sausage between her soft thighs. Uh, uh, her mother would grunt, her voice a striking imitation of the guttural efforts Agatha heard most nights coming from behind the thin lace curtain that separated her parents' bed from the one she shared with her five brothers and sisters. And then, what next? Her mother would continue. Pretty Agatha grows fat as a pig, fat as a cow. Her little tsetses, once tender and delicate as meringue, become achy and so swollen they have to be held up by a harness of cloth that winds round her back and halters at the nape of her neck. Months go by, and the beautiful, smooth skin of her belly becomes striped like a zebra's as if her, as her flesh stretches and pulls. And then, finally, after backache and fat fingers and a burning in her gut so fierce she will think a match has been struck inside her, Agatha's body will split in two. First the body, then the heart. Good night, sleep tight. The bed bugs will surely bite. But her mother is long dead and is not here to sigh and shake her head with false sympathy for her daughter's pain. A flower opening, the midwife calmly insists. You bitch, you whore, you fucking fuck, Agatha rages, her voice becoming clearer to the baby as it begins to swim through the dark tunnel, its head pushing against something hard, then something soft, then something hard again, as if it were a flimsy boat banging up against rocks, then drifting into a calm eddy, only to be drawn back helplessly into the propelling current once more. You ugly whore who no man will fuck even with his eyes closed. 
the midwife laughs. She's heard far worse. (laughs) A rose opening, she persists, the petals pushing out, out, out. The baby twists down and up a U-valve, which is something it will get to know very well when Vaklev Janacek, the father, who, by the way, is nowhere to be heard, who is hiding in the chicken coop that smells like hell, having been neglected by his wife these past 27 hours of her hair-raising labor, will set his child to crawling around the crude plumbing of the first sinks and toilets in the village. And the midwife shouts, It's blooming, blooming, I can see the bud! A whore with so much hair growing on your face, a man thinks he is making love to a mirror! It reaches for the sunlight up and up and up and... Agatha lets loose with a wretched sound that is so loud in the baby's narrow ear canal that the dawning light is occluded by the sheer thickness of the roar. Yes, yes, a rose, a beautiful pink, a beautiful, uh... And now, Vaklev hears nothing coming from the house, not the curses of his wife, nor the scream of an infant, nor the triumphant exclamations of the midwife who can add one more to her tally of live births, only the infernal squawking of the hens. In his panic, he picks up a cackling rooster and stuffs its head under his armpit, an action he will regret when he has to buy a replacement for the suffocated bird. The silence is so dense that it is just as hard on the baby's eardrums as any sound. It is the silence that will become a refrain when a stranger falls speechless in the child's presence or when a villager pushes her children behind her skirts as she passes in the narrow market lanes to protect from what might be catching. The child will learn to hear the complicated messages that fill these silences just the way, years later, imprisoned, it will stand in an unlit cell and study the darkness until all the hues that make it up have been accounted for and named, a painstaking ritual that proves that out of nothing comes everything. Just as now, out of that hush comes a sound at first so soft it could be a whisper traveling from the farthest star, from the outer reaches of the universe, where all time goes, where all history, all wars, all arguments between husbands and wives, all the unanswered wishes of mothers for their children to be perfect and to live long and happy lives gather and mingle, making small talk about the deluded humans who thought that the past was something that could be put away and forgotten, who believed that the future was a story they could make their own. The small sound begins to stretch and expand until it finally ruptures. Aye, Agatha howls in fright. What is this thing? This thing, of course, is a baby. Forty centimeters of baby, to be precise, although no one bothers to measure. No one thinks to enact the rituals of inspection that normally attend a birth, the delicate washing, the finger and toe counting, the near scholarly examination of genitalia for signs of future procreative success. No one offers that the child looks like the father, eyes like the downward smile of nail nail pairings, or that it has a mouth shaped like a perfect raspberry-colored bow that Agatha will finally, but not now, not yet, claim as her legacy, even though she is so old that her lips are no longer supported by a full set of teeth and have nearly collapsed inside her mouth. No one mentions that the baby has hair the color of dead grandmother Luba, whose flaxen locks were her pride. For to make these comparisons is to lay claim, to stamp the child as family so that when the cord is cut and the baby is finally free of Agatha's body, everyone will know to whom it belongs. For Vaklov and Agatha to assert ownership would be to admit that they are cursed, that this child they have prayed for, waited for, that comes to them after neighbors have joked about Vaklev still being able to stand at attention, and about Agata's womb being filled with cobwebs, has turned out to be this thing, this foreshortened object, this disproportionate dollhouse version of an infant. 
It is, it is as though, coming so late to the feast, the plumber and his wife have been given only leftovers, the hardened heels of bread and the tough ends of beef that the others have passed over. During the first half year of Pavla's life, except at mealtimes when she is fed warms goat milk and vegetables macerated to a soupy pulp, or during diaper changes, she has little contact with her mother who doesn't know what to make of her fractional child. Every seven days, she lifts her baby from the crib, removes whatever oversized garments have been left on the doorstep by pitying neighbors, and washes Pavla in a basin. When her daughter is naked, Agata will sometimes let her eyes wander over her child, but just as she feels her tears begin to collect, she sets to scrubbing, using not a perfumed soap, but one that is as harsh as the skin on gravel. Let silly women spend money on fancy toiletries they think will keep their husbands close. A body needs to be scoured like the inside of a pot. Holding up one arm, then the other, in order to get into the creases of the bunched-up baby fat, she reduces her daughter to parts and eradicates the implications of the deformed whole. If Baklev is home, he might do his hip-shaking, tool-jiggling dance to entertain Pavla and distract her from her mother's ministrations. But more often than not, he stands next to the basin and tilts his head to the side, studying his baby as if she were another plumbing problem in need of a fix. The crib remains Pavla's sleeping quarters long after other children in the village have moved into proper beds where the sweating or freezing bodies of their four or six or eight brothers and sisters keep them from rolling onto the hard floor. With no siblings and only one proper bed in the house, Pavla would sleep between her beloved parents, but she resists the transition. She is reassured by her crib whose geometry is so conducive to her size. Confined, she feels that she occupies a comprehensible space relative to her mattress, the house, the village, the world. She teaches herself to add, subtract, and even multiply using the slats, and by the time she turns eight and finally convinces her fearful and protective mother and father, who fret the loss of a good assistant, to let her attend school, she is well ahead of the other children. She is sought after as a seatmate on test days, and and she obliges by angling her tablet to the advantage of her weak-minded neighbor. The lucky student's result is never questioned because the teacher, Mr. Kublov, no student of science or of much else, believes that Pavla's smallness of stature is mirrored by a corresponding puniness of brain, and that she is the one who cheats her way to a perfect score. She is forced to stand in the corner with her back to the classroom, and Mr. Kublov does not bother to admonish the boys who make a game of pitching nuggets of wadded paper at her back. The girls call her little nothing, as though there are descending versions of nothingness. These girls want to assure Pavla that she counts for much less than the next to nothings their mothers tell them they are, by virtue of their laziness when it comes to household chores, or the big nothings their fathers insinuate they are by only speaking directly to their brothers. During outdoor break time, the boys devise a game of chase where Pavla is the chicken and they are the farmers. The winner is the one who wrestles her to the ground and administers the coup de grace. Then she must flap her arms and dance like a decapitated bird. The girls, led by their ringleader, Gita Blazek, are no less eager. They place her in the middle of their circle while they hold hands and raise their arms in an arch and chant, The golden gate was opened, unlocked by a golden key. Whoever is late to enter will lose their head. Whether it's him or her, whack her with a broom. They close their arms around her head like a vice, then administer the punishment. Mr. Kublov watches from his post at the top of the schoolhouse stairs where he smokes his cigarettes and steals nips from the flask hidden in his coat pocket, relieved that the children have found a united purpose so that he doesn't have to break up a fight and risk getting punched or scratched in the process. 
These humiliations continue until heavy rains swell the river that separates Pavla and her neighbors' homes from the other side of the village where the school stands. The bridge is demolished, a fallen poplar now stretches from one bank to the other, but the drop is precipitous and the spindly trunk does not fill the children with confidence. One boy tries to cross but immediately falls off and lands in the muddy bank below. No one wants to make another attempt, but no one wants to return home and be beaten for playing hooky and forced to spend the day mucking out stalls. Pavla runs back to her house as quickly as her short legs will carry her. Her mother is busy stirring lard and lye. The steam from the boiling pot clouds the cottage's window, and she doesn't notice when her daughter slips into Vaklev's tool shed and gathers a mallet, a rope, and a set of pulleys. Once back at the river, she hammers one of the pulleys to a standing tree and feeds the rope through it. She puts the remaining tools into her school satchel and tightens the strap across her back. Holding the ends of the rope in one hand, she hoists herself onto the fallen tree. A wind created by the high and swift current makes balancing difficult, but her center of gravity is low enough to stabilize her, and her small feet find purchase on the narrow trunk. She envisions the makeshift bridge as just another subterranean corridor below the houses where she and her father work, a tight enclosed space that enfolds her and her imagination sees her safely to the other side. There, she hammers the second pulley into a firm root, feeds the rope through until it is taut, and ties a knot. Holding tightly to one of the two ropes, the others nervously make their way across a trunk while Pavla slowly pulls on the other and guides them forward. The games of chase the chicken stop, and if Pavla is remanded to the corner by Mr. Kublov, the other students leave her alone. They begin to seek her out not only to help with their schoolwork, but for also for the more important job of sneaking into the cloakroom in order to put a dead mouse in Kublov's coat or smear glue inside his hat. Once the students begin their geography study, aided by a wildly inaccurate roll-up map suspended from the top of the chalkboard that shows their tiny country, which is routinely tossed back and forth between sovereign empires as a consolation prize for greater losses to be the continent's largest territory, Pavla's precise and wholly proportional map-making skills are discovered. The children enlist her to draw a detailed schematic of the male genitalia on a large sheet of paper. Selflessly, Peter Matichek offers himself as a model. <laughs> During the following day's recess, he and Pavla hide behind the outhouse that is still in use because the mayor does not consider the school or the children or education in general worthy of the expense of Vaklov's plumbing services. Without ceremony, Peter drops his trousers. She has never seen a penis before. It looks like a pale and very narrow and really quite useless section of pipe. <laughs> it moves if you kiss it, Peter says. <laughs> By itself? Try it. Pavla leans forward and puts her lips to the skin that is as soft as the belly of a newborn pig and smells just as musky and tantalizingly complex. When she leans back, she watches in wonder as Peter's penis reddens and swells. For the first time, she witnesses something she had never thought possible, that a small, runty thing can magically transform. I stick it in things, Peter says, touching himself tenderly. It makes perfect sense to Pavla, who thinks of washers and fittings. You better draw it before he shrinks, he says. The following day, when Kublov yanks the string and unfurls the map, there is Peter, or at least the truly marvelous part of him, drawn with a hand so deft that were this a lesson in anatomy, the children would know exactly the location of the dorsal vein, and they would be able to count the folds of the scrotal sac. The ensuing geography lesson is a huge success. <laughs> Peter is particularly proud, and even though the children agreed to protect his anonymity, he cannot help but boast of his contribution. He is suspended from school for a month. Pavla and the others lean over their desks, pants and stockings lowered, and dresses hiked, their naked bottoms pink and proud. 
Pavlos no less for being lower to the ground, and they wait for the stinging crack of Kublov's walking stick. They still call her Little Nothing, but the name is now a sign of inclusion, no more incendiary, incendiary than Toes, which is what they call Tabor Svoboda, on account of his ability to write with his feet. These nicknames mark them as a group separate from parents and teachers, whose aim is to separate children from their delight. Pavla revels in her name because she knows that if nothing is little, then it must be something indeed. Thank you. So I, I want to start by saying that um, Sarah Bynum um, has agreed to do this Q&A with me, and one of the reasons I wanted to ask her, as a, um, beside the fact that she's one of my dearest friends, is that she's an extraordinary writer and wrote a novel called Madeline is Sleeping that um, I'm sure some of you have read, and uh, a novel that is ex- ex- Amazing, extraordinary, and also incredibly inspiring to me for this book. Um, and if you haven't read it, read it. It's beautiful. It's some, it's sui generis, and it filled me with courage. So thank you for doing this. <laughs> and now she'll cry. <laughs> um, I'll clear the little you know, my catch in my throat. Um, but you know, as you've just witnessed. Marissa's generosity as a writer is really evidenced by this room. I do not recall the last time I saw so many writers whose work I love and admire all in the same room. (laughs) Um, So I'm a little daunted right now, but it really speaks to Marissa's great gifts as a writer and also the enormous generosity of spirit that she brings to our literary community in LA. Um, So what a treat for me to get to talk about this book. And I feel like I need to kind of walk a fine line between, um, you know, really wanting to ask all my fangirl questions and at the same time not reveal too much about uh, what unfolds in this beautiful, surprising mystery of a book, um, and, and mystery in so many ways. Uh, so, so I'm going to sort of try to, to walk that tightrope of, of delving deep while not giving... Saying very much oh. of anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I guess the first and most obvious question, and, and one's notices this upon reading the first few pages, is... What a departure this book is in terms of the world it conjures and in terms of the storytelling techniques it uses from your five earlier works of fiction. Um, So what what, what What was I thinking? (laughs) Um, Well, I think I had... I'm going to move this in so I don't have to lean forward. Um... I think what Sarah's referring to, for people who aren't aware, is most of my fiction falls into the category of realism and and, um, probably social realism. A lot of my fiction has to do with um, either historical or social realities and how people live, you know, in sort of relation to institutional things that are happening. Um, You know, Mary Coyne was about the Depression. So, um, and and certainly they're written with a very real um, kind of narrative form. Um, 
And I think when I finished Mary Coyne, which was a book steeped in research, and the kind of mind-numbing kind of, I got to get this right, I got to make sure that, you know, oranges were grown here but not here, and that the, you know, I, I, it was driving me, as some of you know, a little nutty. And when I finished that book, I said to myself, I said, <laughs> I, the next book I write is going to be utterly imaginative. And I think partially um, it was just this sense of, I mean, I... I, you know, was loved Mary Coyne and I loved writing it, but it it felt like I was a little bit kind of um, under the weight of, of having to get it right, you know. And I I wanted to be in a world where no one could say no, oranges didn't grow up. And I, you know, I just could. Um, so that was, I think, part of the you know, kind of a, like a almost like a petulant instinct, you know. Um, uh, little did I know that actually writing a book wholly out of your imagination in some ways is harder because research gives you an enormous amount of you know scene ideas and character ideas and you know whenever you don't know what to do also you can say oh well I've got to spend a couple of days researching so I can't write but also when you're researching you know so you read this wonderful detail and suddenly it, it ties into something you're thinking and you have a scene so actually being in your in my imagination was a little bit more challenging for me. Um, that was part of it. And then I think because that was where I was headed, I was not sort of following certain ideas that would occur to me that might have lent themselves to more realistic kind of novels. And one day I was reading the obituaries, which I read um, religiously, whatever that... I used to read the wedding page section, but, you know, <laughs> life moves on, and, and we with it, and our concerns are different. So I read the obituaries, and I was reading an obituary about a man who... Um, he was in the paper because he was one of the last remaining munchkins who died, and he had actually come from Eastern Europe and um, come to Hollywood and his story included many, many things, including the fact that um, when he was a child, his parents had tried to stretch him. And it was a little line, you know, it was probably five words, and then passed over for all his other accomplishments and a lot of it about the Wizard of Oz. But that detail was, was like, what? You know, I mean, it, it, and I think because I was in a mode of thinking not about you know, I wasn't going to go write a story about a guy who became a munchkin and do the Hollywood, you know, that wasn't that I suddenly, it's, it, that stuck in my craw as like, and it was immediately the stuff of fable. It just felt like a, a detail out of something that could not be real, you know, that it didn't have. So I, um, and, and so then I began to, you know, I thought about it for a long time, and then I began to think about this story, which is not obviously about this guy, but is about this little girl born in sort of an unnamed town in a village in an unnamed country in Eastern Europe in the early part of the 20th century, who's born a dwarf, and her parents try to have her stretched, and then I don't know what happened, but then I began to think, well, what happens if it worked? Yeah. You know, and then what? And then we're going to stop because then we have spoilers. But and then suddenly I was sort of pitched into this framework of uh, a world that was very much not bounded by the, the social realities of anything. I was suddenly in a world where sort of the real and the emotionally real was in conversation with the impossible. And then I kind of went from there and then kept writing my way towards that and allowing myself to make these leaps that I never would have made before and that would have never occurred to me before. Um, so that's kind of where I, what happened. It was, you know, I, one bookseller once said to me, he said, what drugs were you taking? And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> thought I only wish that I could have been doing that. <laughs> But it's so interesting because even though sort of the initial impression is, oh, this is such a departure, as I read further in the book, I saw that sort of the gifts that you 
brought to your other novels, you know, this incredible clarity of image and this forthrightness of tone. And also this deep understanding of human resilience in the face of sort of seemingly um, impossible circumstances. I, I I was recognizing those qualities from your other novels as being very present in this right. one as well. Do you see this book as being in conversation? Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, when you say it, I think, oh, look at me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I don't think about the work in any kind of big picture way that way. It's the oeuvre. Yeah. But I think that we all have our preoccupations and that our work in some ways is always going to speak to the things that are most, um, that, 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 are most deeply kind of troubling us or that we're, you know, I think that we naturally are interested in ideas because they speak to something that is important to us or that troubles us or that scares us or that, and those things are the same in some ways all through your life. Um, and maybe books are just different iterations of many of those themes. Um, the one thing that I think, I, you know, when I wrote the novel, I what I wasn't thinking about at all was what is it about in a kind of writ large way? What is, you know, what are the big ideas here? And, which I never do. I never think about theme. I never think about sort of the English class version of my book. I don't think anybody here does. Um, Because you can't, or I shouldn't say you, but I feel like when I'm writing, if I'm writing towards um, an idea or a kind of intellectual idea, the whatever I'm writing just dies instantaneously. It's like, you know, it's DOA. Because I think what I find is then I, I'm kind of organizing scenes, organizing characters, organizing action to prove a point or to, you know, to sort of fulfill an obligation of the big idea. And that's not the kind of writing that I like. And I don't feel like it's the kind of writing that ever really takes sort of flight, you know, for, for us as readers. Um, and I think you can kind of, when you read books, sometimes you feel the, the author really working hard to get to that point, you know? And, and I think what we love about books is that they utterly surprise us, you know, that we can be reading something that we think we understand. It can be something mundane, a family story of, you know, something that we even feel like we recognize. But if the author approaches it in a way where the unexpected is allowed to be unearthed, then we begin to see something that we thought we understood in a new way. So, you know, I, I just thought about, okay, I got this girl, she's a dwarf, this happens to her, that happens to her, this is the parent, you know, making every beat emotionally accurate, making sure the story moved along, you know, a kind of having an inner logic that it was fun, that the things that happened had a kind of um, adventurous quality to them. Um, But now, you know, once I was done and people sort of said, well, you know, what were you thinking? Um, You know, I was trying to think about, well, what was I thinking? You know, what did go into the making of this book? And, and, you know, know, the book is a lot about female bodies and about how female, the body is... um, uh, the subject of a lot of of being hunted, of being tortured, of being you know it's a, it's a lot about that at the end of the day. And you know when I was thinking about what was going on and what what I was what was going on in my mind during the writing of this, you know I, I looked at you know I mean that was the period of time when the the schoolgirls were stolen by Boko Haram. It was the time when women were being stoned for committing adultery in you know Afghanistan it was um, and there was also something that was happening around the time where people were just going missing like the you know the gir- the school girls in Nigeria and the people on the airplane and in you know the the Malaysian airline and there is uh, that really frightened me and and, and it, I mean for obvious reasons but also the idea that that you could just go missing in this world that we live in and that and that that you know 
I don't know, I can't really explain it, but I know that I was sort of preoccupied by that idea of, of, of becoming nothing. And at the same time, you know, um, my father passed away, which was probably the most, you know, the biggest thing in my life that happened during the time of writing this book. And um, I've been very much preoccupied, as we all are, when things like this happen about, well, what, what happens? What, where is he? Because he's not nowhere, you know, and what what is the presence of absence, and what um, what is nothingness? Um, so I think those were the kinds of things that I was, as a human, was thinking about. Um, I wasn't sort of saying, oh, I'm going to write about these ideas, but I have I sort of think that inevitably they made their way into this story about something utterly different. So you had talked, you used the word fable when you first encountered the the Mm -hmm. stretching table. Um, And then there's a wonderful epigraph uh, from the Brothers Grimm at the beginning of the book. Although I took it out of the book. I took it out for the hardcover. Oh, you did? Oh, Oh, well, but... Never mind. (laughs) But but Brothers brothers Grimm and epigraph aside, um, we do do hear, you know, from very early on, Agatha, the mother, um, telling stories that begin, you know, there once was a girl, there once was a princess. So it's it's the... the, Language of the fairy tale is very much embedded in the book. Um, And so as someone who is, uh, you know, so fluent in social realism, as you were calling it, what, what does drawing upon the storytelling modes of the fable and the fairy tale how did it kind of expand your palette and and how did it allow you to say things um, that I might not have been well you know the thing that interests me about I mean and Sarah is a you know a huge connoisseur of of this form so I'm a little bit of a newbie but one of the things I love about fairy tales is that they are inevitably told in this very frank uninflected pre-psychological style, you know. A mother had three daughters. One of them was ugly. She took her out to the, you know, the woods and killed her. I mean, that, you know, and, and it's like, okay, and then, you know, and then. And, 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 but at the same time, these are stories that, you know, have wormed their way into our souls in ways that many books that are wonderful don't. And, you know, as we all know, I mean, Bruno Bettelheim and all the rest of them, you know, there's there's a reason why tales are told and told and told and why they become sort of uh, almost, you know, Jungianly, that's not a word, um, you know, meaningful in our lives. And I think because, you know, in a funny way, the, the, the tone of a fairy tale is very much like Frank, and I, I write fairly frankly. I write very, I mean, I write more imagistically, and I certainly write with more psychological, you know, nuance. But, you know, I'm also a fairly straightforward writer. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. You know, so, so I think in some ways that tone felt really comfortable to me. Um, and the other thing about, you know, the reason why I sort of laid all these stories in is because, you know, it's it's a story, it's a book about stories in a funny way, and it's a book about how much we're willing to believe in stories, and one of the characters in the book is a, a young man named Danilo who falls in love with Pavla, and um, sort of follows her through all her iterations in and out of human form, um, and he has to keep 
deciding whether he really believes what's happening. And, you know, I think one of the great things about fairy tales, and, I mean, one of the great things about fiction is that um, the way that it causes us to believe in impossible things. You know, we, we hear some words on paper, here's a character conjured out of typescript, and yet they are real to us. They exist. We see them at the table. We see them climbing the mountain. We are involved, in, and that is a, a you know a radical act of belief on our part. And and it, it also is wildly unreasonable. You know, for all of us very socially you know scientifically minded people, we want that. We want to believe. We want to cross over that barrier between the real and the um, imaginary. And so I think that this book is sort of a it takes that and you know takes it to the nth degree. It creates a, a situation which is so wholly unbelievable and then it begs the characters to figure out not only do they believe but what does it mean to believe in something that is is uncanny and is outside of is outside the lines you know what is what is that what is that and it's not a religious belief per se or at all in this book but it's um i you know i think that's sort of uh part and parcel of our lives you know we kind of we we travel back and forth between the realm of the real and the realm of the imagination, the fantasy, the remembered, the dream. That's part of how we live. And this book, I think, makes a compelling argument in terms of how to suggest a character's interiority without relying upon psychology, per se. one of the characteristics of fairy tales is sort of the very flatness of the characters. You know, there is no inner life happening. Everything's happening on the surface. Um, you know, a, a, a daughter is marked because she's ugly or beautiful. Right. Um, and one of the things I was really struck by is how even as you were um, drawing upon the some of the language and some of the narrative techniques of of fairy tales, there was still this fullness to every character that appeared. Um, Yeah, well, I don't think I might, I mean, I was always, you know, once I created this universe, then I approached it like any book that I write. Everybody had to have sort of a a psychological reality that they were working within. So in a funny way, I mean, in my mind, they were just regular folk who I had to approach as though I would have written about a woman in the depression you know so yeah but I, I was I was like interested in how that sort of depth of character and that sort of access to interiority for me was affected through how alert each of these characters were to kind of the world around them so mm-hmm. some of it was sort of created through observation and also through through affect and through emotion, but not the sort of um, um, uh, analysis or contemplation that I associate with contemporary psychological realism. And there was this very um, funny encounter that happens to Danilo later in the book um, where he um, has been confined to an insane asylum and put into the care of a doctor uh, whose, whose teacher is in Vienna. Right. Um, and it's, it's a very funny send-up of kind of early Freudian psychoanalysis. Right. Um, and I was really struck by how, how beautifully this book builds an interior life with kind of without relying upon the sometimes shop-worn tools right. of psychological realism. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I think part of it was being able to play with that idea that you know, I mean, there 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 is psychology in the book, and there's you know, there's, emotion and, and all so those things. Fe- there's so much feeling it, in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of feeling, feeling. but it's also, yeah. um, well, I don't know how to respond to that, but thank you. <laughs> But one, yeah, I mean, and there's sections of the book that are about animals, and and that was really fun to write about animals because, of course, we don't really have access to animal psychology. I mean, we think we do. We all spend a lot, well, my husband and I spend a lot of time talking about what our dog is feeling and thinking (laughs) at every given moment of his life. But, um, you know, but so it was really interesting to think about, well, how do you create an emotion without crossing over that line of anthropomorphizing? And so... um, you know, I think I think again, part of it was just enjoy, enjoying and sort of reveling in the opportunity to also just have a soldier, a war. You know, to have these kind of, um, I, uh, what are they called? Idea. You know, these fairy tale ideas, Ar- archetypes. Ar- archetypes. Thanks. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and playing with that, and then kind of going in and out of it. I mean, there's times when the book pulls back and it becomes really like a, I'm telling you a tale, and here's the soldier. And there's times when we go in real close and we're very in the interior and it was fun it was sort of playful it was like you know once i sort of allowed myself to be in that in that world and playing with that language it was super fun to be like i can, i can do that you know that and that sense of playfulness is so present throughout the book even though the book it's tragic it's tragic <laughs> i mean in addition to the insane asylum we also have there's uh, war there's, there's war, prison there's, i mean there's just like like terrible suffering that happens in this book and yet there's this kind of buoyancy that somehow manages to well because I think it's also what you were saying earlier it's also it it is about resilience in a certain way I mean the character is hunted throughout and no matter what iteration she goes through she's hunted, she's harmed violence is done to her and in some strange way she uh, is um Resilient in a very unusual way, but you know, she sort of, in a way, comes becomes more who she is throughout, despite it. So, but I think that's also part of fairy tales. Again, it's that thing of like, you know, he chopped off her head, and then you know that that. So, fairy tales aren't as funny as you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, the, and that was something else I was also really noticing is how the the suffering in the book is treated with. You know, total seriousness, yet at the same time, there's this irreverent sort of sense of humor that that will um, pop its head up. Yeah, um, well, one, can, one can't take oneself too seriously, <laughs> otherwise, all you people would yell at me. So, <laughs> um. Um, so I wanted to read just one really brief passage of the book that, for oh, sure. me, kind of captured what I feel like the book is doing to me as a reader. And then I thought I would then open it up to questions from all of you, if that sounds good. Okay. Um, And again, I think I can read the... Yes, I don't think this gives anything away. Okay. After that night, Pavla's performance changes. When Danilo removes the cape, instead of simpering and pretending to be ashamed and then roaring for effect, she simply stands motionless, looking out at the audience. She waits out the horrified shrieks, the gasps, the catcalls and stoning until that dangerous energy is spent. At that point, the audience, no longer allowed to engage with her as an act, 
must come to different terms with the fact that she is a living truth, no more fantasy than those who look upon her. Her stillness, her unwillingness to prance and perform, become a different sort of confrontation that makes them feel less superior, vulnerable even, as if their own masks have been violently ripped away, and now the truth of their ugliness and their distorted desires are on display for Pavla to see. Each night, as the women drop their hands from their eyes, as the men stop leaning into one another to tell their nasty jokes, Pavla sees in their faces not ghoulish pleasure, but confusion. Why is she staring at them? What horror does she see? She watches as even the most obstreperous of them wither. Their shoulders turn inward, their eyes cast about for reassurance. They grab one another's hands. People leave as quietly as they do the confessional, and then they buy a ticket for the next show. So, buy a ticket. (laughs) Um, And let this book's penetrating and steady gaze um, at at us as readers. Um, I hope it sort of touches you I, as, as, as really profoundly as it touched me. Um, and Question. I would love to open up the conversation. <laughs> yes, Diana. Uh, so is the purpose of lies ridiculous? Please. research getting stretched? Oh, no. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of made up the mechanism by which it happens, yeah. I mean, I think actually there there are people who were born dwarfs, and they there was a time when that was considered to be some sort of... But I didn't actually research it. I just decided what it would be. I mean, it was very freeing to be in the world of make-believe and not have to worry about how people were really stretched and, you know. Um, but no. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about 9-11 and how the bodies, the jumpers, were airbrushed. Mm-hmm. And I realized that these fallers, they they are really monuments to the position we're in right now. A lot of us are facing choices that are horrific. And I'm seeing a lot of writers navigate trauma and the language and the narrative they use to do that. I'm really struck by the aspect of trauma that I feel from your work. I'm sorry, I haven't read it. Oh, that's good. Um, but I'm wondering if our current political moment um, is influencing how you're seeing narrative structure, how you're seeing the imagination, the kind of um, the outer reaches of the imagination, the frontiers of the imagination, how the imagination is useful to make the leap that we're going to have to make living in the Anthropocene or living in the That's a, 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 an amazing question. Did you all hear it? Um, so, so uh, you want to paraphrase that question, or it's a question about how how writers are dealing with the current moment in which you know the twin towers are falling and people are falling, you know, jumping out of it, and we're sort of am I and and riff. I will riff. Well, you know, I I. Uh, I can't speak for all writers, and I can't even speak for myself in the sense that I I didn't 
you know, as I said, I didn't sort of overtly say to myself, I'm going to respond to this. But I think I'm living through this. I mean, every, every book that you write is a conversation between the world that you create, whether it's a fable or contemporary or historical, and your life, the moment that you're living in and what you're experiencing. In, experiencing. And, and I think that... Um, you know, all art and all, whether it's music or painting or fiction or is an opportunity to um, find another way to look at the harsh realities of living. And so whether you're doing it through a contemporary realist book or whether you've created a fabulous magical realist book or sci-fi or whatever, I think all of it is a way to, to, to sort of not just be able to look at the hard facts of what's going on, but to sort of see what their metaphorical implications might be. And I guess that's what interests me. What interests me is to look at, you know, the idea of the miss of missing, of, of people disappearing, of people jumping out of buildings, of that kind of, um, and, and to sort of find a way to examine that, not on the surface, to write a book about that, but to write a book about what are the sort of more metaphorical implications of missing that 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 happens in life. So for me, as a as a writer, and I'm sure for many people, no matter what art they make, that that's the impl- that's the impulse is to sort of address something that's very real and cold and hard, but through the medium of metaphor and image and the lyric um, idea. So that's kind of what I feel. But thank you for that question. Yes, Amy. So there's a point in the book in which Pablo kind of disappeared. You can't say that. Spoiler. <laughs> okay. Oh, it disappears from the narrative. Yeah. So what was that like? Your main character, and she's not there anyway. It was weird. There is a. There's like a whole. So how did you do that? You know, it, 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 what she's referring to is that in the book, it's all about, you know, Pavla, and then suddenly she does, for a very long portion of the book, she's not in it. She she, you don't know where she is, and, and Danilo, this young man, takes over the narrative. And at first I thought, oh, I can't, that's not okay. And then, and I was nervous about it, because I thought, oh no, the reader will lose the momentum, and then I thought, why not? You know, I mean, it's like my book. I can, do, you know, I mean, if they don't want to read it, that's okay. But I, but it was kind of just in what had to happen in the book is that she didn't, she wasn't there. She was elsewhere. We don't know where she is. And he had to pick up the story. And, you know, his story is kind of our story in a certain sense. It's like, are we believing what's happening? Are we going to, are we going to chase her down in the same way that he's going to chase her down? Um, but it was a little nerve wracking to do. And I kept saying to my editor, is this okay? Is this okay? You know, but I, but I, think that if to the extent that it works for a reader it works you know I think if you stick with the book and you're, you're as interested in him as you are in her and um and it's not as though it's two books it doesn't feel like it's in the hours it's a with like a yes exactly yeah but he's sort of you know he is doing the job of us you know and and um, so I guess in some ways I was okay with it because of that. I felt like, but it, it was. But I sort of feel the more I write, the more I want to sort of break free of um, kind of the, you know, things that I think are the shoulds, you know. And and I feel like the it's it's it, you know I feel like that's sort of something I want to challenge myself to do is to be messier, to be not so shapely, to be you know kind of. Well, that's weird, but okay, you know. And you know, just as a writer myself, I feel like that's kind of something that I'm trying always to head more towards. 
And I also feel like the elasticity of the omniscient point of view that you established at the beginning, you know, how you were talking about how sometimes the narrative really pulls back and is using more of a tale-telling voice, and then sometimes we move in very intimately with the Mm -hmm. um, characters. I feel like you establish that omniscience with such authority in the first few chapters that I kind of felt willing to go wherever the narrative wanted to take me. If the narrative wanted to take me with the wolves, I'll go there. If the narrative wants to take me to Danilo, I'll go. So, so I also thought that was sort of a, a um, marvel out, that came out of the way you were using point of view and the way you established point of view. Thank you. David. I, I just want to say I'm... Um, that you love me. <laughs> And I say this lovingly, but I'm, impre- you know, I'm impressed and kind of amazed at how, I mean, if Sarah Bynum or um, Amy Bender had written this book, I would be like, yeah, this is... That's in their wheelhouse, yeah. But thinking that you've gone from Mary Coyne to writing this, I think it's an amazing accomplishment, but that's not my question. I, <laughs> you were talking about how it, it sort of appeared organically and you went where it took you. And I'm interested in in this notion of the of themes arising after we finish a book and we learn about stuff in interviews and reviews and questions from audiences. And I'm just curious as to what might you have what you might have learnt about the book since you finished in the context of this period. Everything, you know. I mean, it's so. It's a good question because I rem- when I finished the book, I was sort of a little embarrassed because I didn't really know what it was about. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.